Welcome to the Wellness Journey podcast from the St. John Vianney Center. I'm Dr. Mariette Danilo, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to journey with you through these challenging times and to hopefully provide you with information that will help sustain you. Our podcasts are aimed at keeping you healthy in mind, body, and spirit. This is podcast 23. Today's podcast is an interview with Dr. Brett DiGiovanni. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. Brett DiGiovanni, MD, serves as a psychiatrist for the St. John Vianney Center, where he has worked uh, for numerous years with clergy and religious. Dr. DiGiovanni is a board certified psychiatrist with subspecialty certifications in child and adolescent psychiatry and forensic psychiatry. Dr. DiGiovanni's academic credentials include an undergraduate degree from Johns Hopkins University and a medical degree from Columbia University. He completed his postgraduate training at the University of Pittsburgh. In addition to Dr. DiGiovanna's work at St. John Vianney Center, he is a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at Penn State Hershey Medical Center, supervising residents for forensics training, a consultant for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania performing pretrial criminal evaluations, and serves as a consultant for the military, providing pre-enlistment examinations Dr. DiGiovanna also maintains a private practice in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And now let me welcome Dr. Brett DiGiovanna. So Dr. DiGiovanna, welcome to the Wellness Journey podcast. Thank you for being with us today and for generosity of your time here. We're really glad to have you here today. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. So our topic today, unfortunately, is suicide. Um, and we're seeing a lot of mental health fallout from this pandemic. Can you tell me, what are you seeing and hearing at this point in time? Does that resonate with what you're seeing? Absolutely. I think fallout is a, is a good word. We are seeing a lot of fallout from the pandemic I think we are seeing increases in a lot of mental health conditions. We're seeing certainly an increase in relapses and the use of substances. We're seeing increased stress, increased isolation, and then all the mental health fallout from that. So we see people that may have been sort of just hanging on prior to the pandemic and then losing some of their, I think, supports that they were able to have prior to the pandemic, for instance, not being able to attend some meetings in person or, or therapy sessions in person, and then increased isolation, and then really feeling that sense of stress and anxiety, and leading, of course, to just increased in depression and a, a number of other conditions. Right. I mean, we were seeing baseline-wise, we were seeing um increases before the pandemic but this seems to be the perfect storm given the isolation and other characteristics of it 
So, I mean, this is not the most pleasant of topics to talk about, but why do you think it's important to talk about this now? I, I think it's incredibly important to talk about because we are in the midst of a public health crisis, not only obviously with the pandemic, but a mental health public crisis and a suicide public health crisis. Suicide rates have been increasing over the past 20 years. And certainly when you have an environment where there is increased stress and increased rates of mental illness, there is going to be increased concern about suicide. So it's important to talk about suicide because as mental health professionals, we want to be able to intervene and reduce the risk of suicide and injury from self-injurious behaviors. You know, it used to be that we thought adolescence was the most high-risk time for something like this. Do you do you agree with that? Do you do you see that there's any difference in ages or time of life? Perhaps more like when people retire, or is there a time of life, an age, or even a gender where someone is most likely to commit suicide? What we're finding is that the most vulnerable group demographically are older men. If you look at the rates of suicide, we talk about rates per 100,000. So overall, the population rate is about 14 per 100,000. In men above the age of 75, it's approaching 40. So that's the highest rate. Mm. And it's in stark contrast to rates for women which actually decline uh, in that age group. And I think part of this may be some of the vulnerability that older men are to isolation. Um, it's not an uncommon scenario. Um, older man will lose his spouse and feel an extreme sense of isolation and loneliness, or there is the burden of health problems, which is a risk factor. So this is a particularly vulnerable age group. And I think important for our work at St. John's as we're seeing a, an aging population to be mindful of that risk. Mm, thank you. Um, what are some common myths about suicide? What do you most um, want to tell people in terms of dispelling myths or ways of thinking uh, that just simply aren't uh, true? I think there are few important uh, myths to expose. One is that by talking about suicide, one is somehow likely to encourage or plant the seed of suicide. And we know this to be incorrect. We know that actually by asking about suicide, we are intervening, we are showing uh, concern, we are showing interest, and that allows us to do an assessment. So it's important that we be able to talk about it. Another common myth is that if we prevent somebody from uh, acting on a suicidal impulse or trying to commit suicide one way, they will just find some other way of doing that. And we know that's false as well. So for instance, there has been measures to try to prevent people from gaining access to certain sites uh, such as bridges. People will put up barriers to prevent suicides. And there has been a debate whether that's going to prevent. And we, we certainly know that it does, that there's an impulsive quality to a lot of suicidal action. And so anytime you can prevent the means of suicide, you can actually reduce the risk. Hmm, that's interesting. Hmm. 
So is there a typical pattern of behavior that predicts suicide or is it different in each uh, individual case? I think there are some broad statements we can make about who is more vulnerable to suicidal thinking and likely to engage in a suicidal uh, action. But every case is obviously different and there are different reasons behind that. We can broadly say that we think 90% of people who commit suicide have some mental health condition. Now, mm. that statistics may, it may differ depending on where someone draws the line about a mental health condition, whether they include substance abuse, personality disorders, and such. But we know that it's around 90% of people will have some kind of mental health problem that end up committing suicide. Hmm, so you just answered my next question. Um, I was wondering if that was always the case. Um, so it's possible for someone to be healthy in, in mind and, and yet make that decision, but hmm, interesting. Um, yeah, and just on that point, we do know that there there are, uh, and we, we think about risk factors, there are stressful life events, there are things that just sort of happen, so someone may have no history of any underlying mental health problem, uh, and they, they may act in such a way, whether there's extreme life stress, extreme, uh, an extreme mm -hmm. loss, or something that may lead to uh, feelings of desperation and a suicide attempt. So sometimes it's situational as Correct. opposed to dispositional. So a, a, a particular situation might um, just you know, pre uh, present the perfect storm for the individual and then um, that person may be at risk. So I guess that uh, gives more credence to the notion that we need to keep a close eye on our brothers and sisters, especially during this time. So can you tell us something about the role of medications in suicide? Um, and and I, I would imagine that the medication would be uh, present when there's a mental health disorder. But what, what is your um, take on that? How helpful are medications? Well, I think there's a, there's a few things I would say about, about medications. Obviously, if there is an underlying mental health condition that uh, predisposes somebody to a mood disorder or suicidal thinking, we obviously want to be able to treat that. But we know specifically uh, agents such as lithium have great amount of evidence supporting their anti-suicidal properties. These are findings that are even in addition to its benefits for treating an underlying mood disorder such as bipolar disorder. For instance, we know that using lithium can lower the risk of suicide somewhere between 60 and 90 percent for someone that uh, has a mood disorder. And this may be even for people with major depression or unipolar depression as opposed to just bipolar disorder. So it's an important uh, agent to think about even when somebody doesn't have bipolar illness. The other thing I will say, which is just fascinating, from observational studies we know that Lithium is it's a natural element, and it is found in drinking water almost universally, just sort of seeps in from the environment. They have done observational studies where they look at the content of lithium in drinking water, and we know that there is a correlation between higher content of lithium in drinking water in the public and having lower rates of mortality from all reasons, but especially from suicide and from other violence. So there seems to be something in the, in the element that is protective 
both of suicide and of violence. And it's just fascinating to pursue that and to see how we may use this agent more broadly in mental health rather than just thinking it as something that is specifically for bipolar illness. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, what a, I'm thinking about lifestyle and I'm thinking about exercise, diet, and even do, would those have an impact on someone's suicide risk, even indirectly, if they were, if exercise and diet, nutrition, um, if, even indirectly by um, uh, impacting the brain in, in uh, positive ways? I mean, there's a lot of research um, about the brain right now. And it, it, do you see any tie in there? Is there any relationship between nutrition, exercise, lifestyle? And I know, I understand too that sometimes when we're depressed, we won't exercise or eat properly, but um, can you comment on that? I think this is an exciting area of research in psychiatry and mental health in general. So frequently we focused on either psychotherapeutic studies or medication studies, but there is so much coming out about the role of diet and exercise in maintaining mental health and preventing relapse of depression and mental health disorders. So absolutely, these are important tools. We know that people who do eat regularly, healthy diets, um, there's good evidence for a Mediterranean diet as useful in, in preventing relapse and depression. There's good evidence that you know, mild to moderate exercise is protective for relapse and mood episodes. So we do have some, we're, some good evidence that these kinds of interventions are extremely helpful, both in preventing and in maintaining one's mental health. Mm, and not even directly, but maybe correlation-wise, they would all, um, or have indirect relationships, but all good. That's, that's good to know. Now, you've already uh, spoken about gender differences and um, prevalence, but um, do men and women differ in their method of suicide? Uh, I mean, is that another myth that men tend to, will be more likely to choose a gun or a violent means or, and women more all, you know, apt to, let's say, take a pill. So uh, do you see any gender differences that way? There certainly are gender differences and these are pretty consistent across studies and across time. Men will more often choose to uh, die by firearm and women will most likely attempt by poisoning or overdose of some type of medication or over-the-counter medication. So there certainly are differences. Uh, that doesn't mean that women do not choose firearms. We do know that women attempt more frequently than men. Men tend to be much more successful because of the means they choose in choosing firearms. There's still a significant amount of women that die by firearm death as well. Mm. Sadly, huh? Um, so what would be some signs to watch out for that someone might be struggling or at high risk? What would you consider some of the key risk factors that, that you or I or anyone could, could see? Sure. This is an important question because there are risk factors that we, we look at and we think about a, a vulnerable population. So we touched on before about a particular vulnerable population, an older adult who maybe has had a recent loss, uh, health condition. 
we know that there are other vulnerable populations. Someone who has just been released from a psychiatric hospital uh, has an increased risk of dying by suicide, especially within the first few weeks after discharge. We know someone that has been admitted to or uh, charged with a crime and admitted to a jail is, is a high risk. We know that there are these vulnerable populations. But then we know more broadly about what we call risk factors for suicide. And those are things that we think about as uh, mental illness is certainly one risk factor, but then we can sort of divide that down and we can think about different types of mental illness and different symptoms of mental illness. For instance, we know people that struggle with a lot of anxiety and panic have increased risk. People that have insomnia that's untreated, people that struggle with substances. And of course, there are uh, static risk factors we talk about. Those are things that are age and gender and even race plays a factor. Um, we know that people um, have risks in, uh, in, in means of what their psychological stressors are, financial stress. We know that poverty can be a risk factor. So there's a whole host of risk factors that we, we look at when we're doing an assessment and that enables us then to, I think, address these individual risk factors and come up with a plan about how we're going to best help someone and, and lower their risk of suicide. So, okay. So it becomes important. Um, sometimes people are abusing substances because they're self-medicating due to anxiety or um, anxiety or, or unmanaged stress. So I hear you saying that you would encourage people to um, uh, be more active in managing their stress um, and uh, addressing those problems before, uh, before it leads to problems. And in your opinion, are those all the things that we just mentioned, are they uh, addressable? Very, is there, um, are they easy to do, easier to deal with than we might think? Um, I, I know some people are uh, hesitant to um, engage in, in addressing their anxiety or even talking about it. Right. So I think when we talk about doing suicide risk assessments, if we do it in a systemic way and we can tease out those different factors and we can identify them, that can give us a roadmap to try to intervene. So for instance, if we know that a, a stressor uh, such as lack of social support or loss, we can try to understand what that, uh, what kind of other interventions there for we can provide for someone connecting them with uh, social services or some kind of support. If we know that someone is struggling with the loss of a job, is there employment that we can help them find a referral to a job counselor? If we know that is someone is struggling with housing, those kinds of interventions, can we can we look there? So helping us in doing risk assessment and teasing out these factors gives us a roadmap to, to addressing them. And certainly stress is something that we need to know about because that is an important factor in being able to uh, address as far as what's going to predispose someone mm -hmm. to have an, a recurrence of a mood episode, increased anxiety, difficulty sleeping, feelings of hopelessness, things such as that. Hmm. So even if someone doesn't think he's at risk for suicide, if he's experiencing anxiety or any of these other issues, it does, it, it's helpful to get help for them. Um, so that, um, you don't even get onto that road. Um, so research has shown that 
religion and spirituality um, and a sense that one's life has meaning are protective factors that can reduce risk. What's been your experience? Would you agree with that? I think that's absolutely true. We know that part of what we do when we do a risk assessment is to not only look at these risk factors that we've talked about, but is to look at protective factors. And some religious affiliation or spiritual orientation uh, is incredibly important to ask about and one that uh, is often neglected in the general mental health community. But we know that having a religious affiliation is a protective factor. Uh, in our own experience, we see the, the population we work with that it is an important source of uh, support and strength. We have members from religious communities that have a community spirit and they are able to garner that support from their fellows. And I think that's just a, such an important part of their healing and well-being. Right. And, and what we mean, one example of a protective factor would be social support. Do you have a good friend, someone you can confide in? Um, that sort of thing. So um, many say that religion provides that, provides the social support. But, um, it's very interesting. Thank you. Um, we know from the resilience research that some people who face trauma or crises move on to heal and, and even thrive. But some, after similar challenges, just decline into despair and hopelessness. Does this resonate in your experience? Uh, what are your thoughts on this? What's, I mean, we, there was a researcher named Norman Garmazy. He was at Columbia years ago, and he actually, he was the first person to actually set, try to study why children in adverse situations, some of them went on to thrive and others uh, just went south and declined. And what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, topic uh, about trauma and trying to understand who will go on to develop, let's say, post-traumatic stress disorder after exposure to a trauma and what is the role of resilience in that? So I believe that there is a component that we will just sort of call temperament, which is, if you want, uh, like to say, just sort of a genetic component. People are kind of wired in a way that they will process emotions and stress in a certain way that may be more adaptive than others. So that there's that component. And then of course, there's sort of the environmental component. For instance, were they raised in a safe and secure home where having a significant trauma, they may have been inoculated from some of the more significant effects of PTSD because they have been able to have that experience of a caregiver, have been able to learn self-regulation skills, have been able to understand their emotional lives better. We know people are very vulnerable if they have that disruption at a young age if they don't have that affiliation with a significant person in their lives. And if we know that they've had repeated trauma, that's going to predispose them to, I think, even have more significant difficulties down the line with each repeated stressor or incidence of trauma. Mm, yeah, it's, it's compounded, I imagine. So, um, well, final thoughts here. Um, 
people right now are experiencing what some call COVID fatigue. All right, we're weary, we want our lives back, and we're seeing a lot of irritability, fatigue. Uh, people in religious communities, some of them are having difficulty uh, getting along, you know, just sort of getting on each other's last nerve. Uh, we see a lot of this um, right now, and you know, with the the vaccine is just being so uh, very slowly um, uh, offered. It's just coming out very slowly. What advice can you give our listeners on how to stay healthy in mind, body, and spirit? We need some positive advice. I think that's uh, so important because this is an opportunity we all have to evaluate how we deal with stress and how we are able to cope with just an immense amount of change in our lifestyle. So I am a firm believer that the most important thing that we can do is be in relationship with one another. And so making sure that we stay connected in some way is so important for our mental health. Obviously that's a challenge given the pandemic. Mm. It's been said that it would have been better to call the recommendation uh, social distancing, physical distancing. Yes. Because yes. then if we if we think about that, you know, social distancing, we think about giving up our social connections yeah. and yeah. limiting those. But those are so important. So if we can find those connections, they're certainly going to be more difficult. But even electronically, ke keeping in touch with people and, and the technology has enabled that is so important. And then the things that we have talked about as just managing stress are so important and trying to build a routine. So things like regular exercise, healthy diet, maintaining a good sleep pattern. Uh, sleep is so important for our mental health and it's so easy to be disrupted when our previous routines have been disrupted by this pandemic. We need, we need, need to pay attention to all of the things that we sort of take for granted in, in doing our routine, things like diet and exercise and sleep. You know, you raise a, a good point there because many of our, our the people we serve uh, believe it's frivolous and selfish to sleep too much, or that that they people today pride themselves on how little sleep they get because they're really working hard. And so, um, I, I think it is a very important thing that you mentioned because sleep deprivation can create some psychological problems or some some outlook problems, I'll call it that. What, what do you think? Would you agree with that? And how much sleep should everybody get every night? Yeah, this is such an important topic. Uh, we are, as a nation, and this is another pandemic, we, we are sleep deprived. And we should be getting, ideally, seven to eight hours of sleep. And we're not. We know that the average adult does not necessarily approach that, that figure. Right. And there are multiple, mul a multitude of consequences to that, both health-wise and mental health-wise, right. that uh, we're, we see just sort of in increased rates of diabetes, heart disease, mental illness, uh, cognitive decline, accidents, underperformance at work. So this is so important to pay attention to. Uh, and it's sort of counter to what we've been taught in our, in our culture. And I think we need to get back to sort of fundamental thinking about sleep is an easy, easy medicine to prescribe to somebody, not always easy to put into place, but it could be a very important intervention in 
assuring someone's ability to deal with stress and lessen their um, risk of mental health problems down the line. And we're sort of we're sort of uh, channeling here into the result the topic of resilience. And so all of the things we've talked about um, help someone would help someone stay healthy in mind, body, and spirit. And if um, a difficult situation should arise, um, I would hope that uh, you know, doing that work um, would help one navigate through a difficult time. So I think that's what I hear you saying. If anything, any other words of wisdom for our listeners before we close? Well, I think as, we're, as we've talked about the, the issue of suicide, I think I would just prompt people to always just inquire about the, the health of one another and to just be curious if you, if you see someone struggling. And even if you aren't, just to check in with people. This is a, a conversation that can easily be had. And we need to eliminate the stigma of mental illness in general and of suicidal thinking. We know that it's not uncommon for people to have suicidal thoughts and sometimes even suicidal plans. And we need to be, I think, proactive about reaching out to one another and just being curious and therefore being a, an open an open ear and an open mind to hearing what people's struggles are and thereby helping them get connected with services and the help they need. So really it's to, to be there for one another, especially in this time. Well, that's... Thank you so much for that. We've been telling people that right now, this is no time to mind your own business, really. We are each other's business and we want our brothers and sisters to look out for one another. So uh, Dr. D. Giovanni, thank you so much for being with us today. I know you're a very busy man. We appreciate it. And um, I do hope you have a good couple of weeks and um, I think spring is right around the corner. Let's hope so. And, and thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, well bye-bye now. Thank you. Till, till next time. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Wellness Journey Podcast. I hope today's interview was useful to you. You can find all our podcasts and get additional information and resources for clergy and religious by visiting our website at sjvcenter.org. We are the St. Giovanni Center, and our mission is you.